you would bow with me. Father, we are thankful that we are able to gather here today to study your word. I ask that you would give us insight and understanding. We need you, Lord. We need your strength and power from on high to understand and grasp the wonders of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would, if there's somebody here today that's lost, that grew up in church, has a background in it, but not, does not know you, we pray that they would put their hope in the Lord Jesus today. I pray, Lord, for the believer here who has maybe lost sight of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would do a work in their hearts and in their lives. Lord, we ask that you would help our children understand that they may just they may know all the stories of Jesus. They may know about uh, the work that he has done in our own lives, but they may not know him personally. We ask, Lord, that you would give them a heart that would understand, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray that they would live in light of the wonder of the gospel. We pray that they would know that walking with you in this present world is not easy, but it is good and it is right. Lord, I ask for... Um, us to be a church that lives out in the community demonstrating what it means to be a follower. Not, not just in name, but in our actions. In Christ's name, amen. When you look at this passage and you're thinking about it today, I, the, I, years ago I heard a sermon and it was called like Winning by Losing. And um, it's kind of this great paradox of the Christian life of both messiahship and discipleship. The promised king won by losing, and his followers win by losing. A paradox is something where it seems like a contradictory statement. You don't think of it, it should work in this way, but when you think and you consider it, and you investigate it, you realize that it's well-founded or true. And so the whole thing of the Christian life is winning by losing. If you were to grow up in first century Palestine and you were to study with the, uh, you know, the leaders of that day and they would talk about the coming of Messiah, they would be filled with all types of thoughts of him overthrowing Rome, of him like defeating all of uh, the enemies of the people of God. And so uh, that would have been kind of in the air. And people would have thought, if Messiah comes, this is what it's going to look like. When Jesus shows up, it's not what they thought it would look like. They had in their mind what it would be, and he was different than that. They may have thought of something like Abraham who rescued Lot, or Moses who decimated Egypt, or Joshua who uh, entered the promised land and they overcame all the, the leaders of that day. Or David, who you, they would say, he's killed tens of thousands of the Philistines. They were looking for an earthly win. It was like winning by winning not winning by losing. When the people were asking for a king, if you remember, they wanted a king like the nations. A king like the nations meant that they, he was powerful and mighty and he looked the part. Someone like Saul. They probably wouldn't make a list of like holiness or morality or servanthood or self-sacrifice. That's not exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for 
a leader like men look for leaders. An earthly leader. And they were thinking of the earthly ways. You remember Peter, even, uh, even late, like when uh, Jesus is about to be taken away, he pulled his sword out and he cut the ear off of the high priest's servant. He cut it off. And Jesus said to him, Do you think that I could not appeal to the Father and call down twelve legions of angels? This is why, really, you kind of understand Jesus even speaking with Pilate. And he said, you have no authority and yet, but the authority that's been given you. You know, that's not something that you have. Jesus made that clear. His kingdom was not of this world, and it didn't look like this world. And he didn't act like a world's king. The crucifixion would not have been in the plan of others. I think it's just important to think about that. When you think about, like, the kind of kingdom you want to build for your life. Maybe you have that in mind. The kind of leader you want in your country. The kind of leader you want in your family. You want earthly safety, earthly security, earthly strength, earthly salvation. That's what a lot of us think about. Those are the things that we consider to be great. It's not winning by losing. It's winning by winning that we do. And that's what we buy into, and that's what we think about, and that's what we are taught from childhood. We don't necessarily want to be in the arena of the cross. We want to be in the arena of the crown. We don't want to necessarily go to, like, we might say something like, oh, I didn't really, I don't want to storm the beaches of Normandy, but I would love to be in New York City on the day that V-Day hit, and everybody's celebrating, and everything's exciting. And the reality is, though, when we are looking at things, and what we need to consider is, in one sense you could say, for sure, the day hit, the crucifixion took place, victory was won, but the fullness of that is yet to be. We are living between D-Day and V-Day. That's the life that we live. That is what it means to follow Jesus now. And so, we still experience dangers, toils, and snares. That's just part of it. That's part of the life that we live. So the main point today is about winning by losing. It is winning by losing. And I would say the first step of that is by looking at the Messiahship. What does it look like to be king, a king, who wins by losing? Mark 8.31 And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That's important. Jesus didn't always speak plain, like kind of what we call just plain English. He would speak with parables and different things. And when he spoke, you kind of look at this and you say, I can't believe he said it in this way. It is so clear, crystal clear, so clear that everybody there that heard it understood it. He was not hiding his plan. He's not like holding back from what the Lord would have him say and do. And he is under the, I mean, under the direction of the Father. He says what he says as he is told to say it, as he is guided by that. And the reality is when you look at this, you say, okay, Jesus is about to be killed. And I, it's just that clear. Now, the other thing to say about that is this. When you look at Jesus and you think about messianic authority and you think about royal dominion and you think about all that stuff, like I said, it's not in your head. That's not what you're thinking about. That's not the way I think about. But that is what is taking place here. The other thing that you would not be looking forward 
or, or thinking about in this regard would be that the religious leaders who've been talking about Messiah, the blood of Jesus is on their hands. That they would have been the ones that killed Him. Both of those things would kind of send you thinking, what? Now, another thing just to know, when you're thinking about the meaning and life and mission of Jesus, I think it's important to say that they might have read about like Him coming in this glorious way. Like they, they thought of him like riding in on a horse and defeating all the enemies. And they somehow missed Isaiah 53. And y'all probably read that this week, but it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, and as one through whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and they esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They did not associate Messiah with suffering. They did not associate Messiah with a suffering servant. They did not think of Jesus as going down that road. When you think about the Sanhedrin who were a part of killing Jesus, that, 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 their court system was known throughout the world. The Sanhedrin would have been, it was made up of um, 70 elders, lay men, uh, uh, lay members who were kind of a ruling council, the chief priests, the, the current high, uh, you could say current high priest their predecessors as well as family, and then there were scribes, all these legal experts, and they thought a lot about these kind of things. And so you think, like, they wouldn't do something this crazy, this horrible, this destructive, and that is what they did. And so again, as people were thinking about the Son of Man, they're thinking about the Messiah, they're not thinking about death, they're thinking about victory. They're reading Daniel chapter 7, which some of you probably read recently if you're doing Bible Recap. And there's this one like the Son of Man that the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom to. But then when you read Isaiah 53, this Son of Man that Jesus is speaking out about is going to suffer. And so these two things are brought together. He is going to have a kingdom, but the way in which He's going to get it is through suffering. That's the path. That's the road. That's the journey. And the reality is what's funny about that is that that is the journey or the story that people tell all of the time. When you think about all different types of groups of people, anywhere, in any kind of context, there's this pathway. The pathway is a pathway of suffering. I think maybe the church might be the only place where you might be confused about that. We don't talk like that sometimes. We miss that. So Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. And he says, uh, Jesus, you're the Christ. I've just said it. You said it came from heaven. You are the Christ. And you even said that flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but you're my, the Father did. So if you are the Christ, then why are you saying that you're going to suffer? So he's going to rebuke him. He's going to confront him. And so Peter wants him to know, like, you're, you've kind of, you've stepped out of line, Jesus. I just need you to know that. You stepped out of line. 
Peter thinks that he understands better. So Peter rebukes him. But Jesus responds. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter, like we, I think Ryan mentioned this in a, a, a earlier, or I think it was like maybe a week or so ago, but basically that like everything happens really fast. Well, then you go from like Peter doing this amazing thing to Peter and saying something that just shocks you. And you know it's from heaven. I mean, you're like, this is from heaven to saying something that is from earth, using his own wisdom, thinking in his own thoughts, like coming up with his own answers. And that's what you see. So Jesus says to him, which is shocking, get behind me, Satan. Is that not blow your way? One, one scene, he's saying like, you've got this from heaven. The next scene is you got this from Satan. That's a shocking reality. That's a, that's a real struggle for us to consider that and to think about it. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to get Jesus to bypass the cross. The way to bypass the cross to the crown would be to go Satan's way. You want to be in a great place of authority? You want all the kingdoms of the earth? I'll give those to you. Bypass the cross to get straight to the crown. Peter didn't want him to go to the cross. He didn't want him to suffer. It was not the kind of king that he envisioned. It was not the way that the hope of the nations would come together through the death of the Messiah. And you know what? When you're indoctrinated by the hope of man, you will look for hope in a man that looks nothing like Jesus. And you'll say to yourself, that's okay. That's okay. When you buy into the doctrine of men, then you win. Not by losing, but by winning. Is that shocking? Does that seem backwards? Does that seem like the kingdoms that you think about? Does that seem like the world that you would paint? You, you could easily say, I could buy into what Peter is saying. Peter has just like the thoughts of the Israel of old, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Peter thinks like they think. They think about this world. He was thinking temporally, not eternally. That's a huge thing to say. He was thinking about the temporary, the present, not the future. He was thinking about the broad road, not the narrow road. This is a, it's scary to think about how easy you could get off track. Jesus is not calling you to follow him so that your life will be easier or better in the present. It's not what he's doing. But anyway, as you continue forward thinking about that, Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The means by which He's going to come and redeem and save and rescue the world is by the cross. The reality is that all of our enemies, it says in, in Colossians 2, that Jesus canceled the record of debt and stood against us with 
that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you were to read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, have the mind of Christ. What is that like? He emptied himself. He laid down his life. He became a servant. A servant to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And then it says, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. The cross was the way to the crown. It was winning by losing for the Messiah. And you might say, I agree with that. But is it winning by losing for you? If you were to think about Christianity, is it winning by losing for us? Is that what it's like? Edwards says, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. You hear that? A wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Y'all need to say that again, or y'all are we good? Are y'all good? Okay, good. If Jesus won by losing, will it be any different for you? 834. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Some churches, their whole teaching is this. How can I tell the people that come on a Sunday morning how it will make their life better if they'll follow Jesus? Why do they teach that way? Because of a doctrine of demons? or Is it, why would they teach that way? Why would they teach that it will be easier to follow a suffering Messiah? to follow in his footsteps, to follow him to the cross. Why would they teach that? Is it an earthly doctrine? Is it a doctrine that would say this, Jesus would say of it, get behind me, Satan? Is that shocking? I mean, that that just blows your mind. That kind of teaching is prevalent in our hearts. It comes up from the earth, not down from heaven. He said, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And when you see the disciples, Peter and John, persecuted, they said, they beat them and charged them and said, don't speak of Jesus. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were following in the footsteps of Christ and they like rejoiced in that. What does it mean to deny yourself? Christy Gambrell says this, Denial in the New Testament is the intentional disassociation from relationship with a particular person. Another translation then would be to disown or renounce. For example, this this verb is used when Peter denies Jesus. He denies that he knows Jesus or has any association with him. Self-denial, then, is an intentional disowning of the self or stepping away from relationship with the self as primary. Jesus is not making a statement about whether the self is bad, but about who we are most closely associated with. Who is our allegiance to? The self or Christ? When thinking about crucifixion, 
she says, what does it mean to take up your cross? Crucifixion was reserved specifically for offenders who had rebelled against authority. To take up one's cross referred to the practice of forcing a condemned person to carry the crossbeam to his execution site to die. That, that's what is the, the picture here. This showed that although they'd rebelled against authority, this condemned person, their last act was to go and be crucified. They are carrying that cross because it is their last step. It is their final submission. They have rejected submitting to rule all of their life, and now they are dying. A call to bear one's cross as part of following Jesus then is a call to be as submitted to Christ as the condemned criminal was to his death and that cross. So, in your everyday life with your coworker, when you're at home with your spouse, which this is a tough one, when you're talking to your children, yesterday Anna was like, the way you talk to him, not good. Wasn't cross bearing like. It wasn't you'd forgot about yourself like. In every respect, self denial, self forgetfulness, leaving oneself, cross bearing, that's the pursuit, even to the point of death. You're disassociating with self. Now, let me, let me think about this with you real quick. Have you ever said, I deserve? Does that show you that you have disassociated with yourself? I deserve? What about this? I'm going to get everything I can out of this life. Is that, is that cross-bearing thinking? Is that self-denial? Some of you, again, like you may have come to church this morning thinking like, what can I get for myself? Here's what you can get. Deny yourself. That's what you can get this morning. Follow Jesus in becoming humble to the point of death. What about this one? I deserve to be loved. Really? Why do you say that? Jesus came to save us even when we were unlovely. We don't deserve to be loved. We have been loved. You might even think in terms of like, I just want somebody in my life that will love me as much as I love myself. Not good terminology. Not good thinking. But very consistent with a lot of people's ideology. Earth, something coming up from the earth, not from heaven. I need to be fulfilled. Or you could say, you know what, it's not about me, it's about my children. I just want them to be fulfilled. I want them to be selfish and not selfless. I want them to have all they ever dreamed of. That's scary thinking. That's scary thinking. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body 
the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember when Jesus would meet different people and be like, I'll follow you wherever you go, but let me do this first. But, I'll follow you wherever you go, but, 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 but. They just wanted to add in, well, but I'll do this first. Let me do this first. Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That's tough. I mean, is that hard for you to hear? Doesn't that go against your natural tendency? You just don't want to hear it that way. So if you're a kid here today, your daddy and mommy are not more important than Jesus. And you're not more important than him. Right? You have to train that and teach that and explain that and mirror that and model that. Verse 36 and 37 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What if I gave you 80 years, let's say 85, of perfect health, perfect relationships, all the money you could ever dream of, all the things that you could ever buy, you could have it all, all the fame you ever wanted, all the fame that you deserve, all the wealth that you deserve. Everything perfect. 80 years, everything you could ever dream of, it was all there. You had it all. Would you trade that for your soul? For your eternal soul? Would you trade that? Would that be a good trade? In light of eternity, would that be a good trade for you? That would be the most foolish thing ever. The question is, is are you? Are you trading it? Are you trading that for your soul? Have you traded it? If you were to gain all the treasures of this world and heap them up, every pleasure, every trip, every home, every piece of land, every relationship on earth, perfect, would you trade it for your soul? Is it worth it to you? The road you're traveling is either earthly or heavenly. And it's the same for me. You even want to ask yourself, am I raising up a little family that is going to be more secure in this present age than they are in heaven? How, how do you know if you're doing that? Are you teaching them to build up as much treasure as they possibly can in this present world, or as much treasure as they possibly can in the world to come. How do you know if you're doing that? I think you just have to stop and look and consider. What's it worth? I've heard people say before, you know, that all, if, you, if you mess the gold of the world, you know they use it for pavement. It's kind of cheesy. But in the, in the world to come, it's not worth it. In God's economy, the only thing that is of value, one great speaker, I can't remember his name right now, said is the blood of Christ. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You do not want to find your allegiance on this earth in the end. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the sword. He is coming to judge all wickedness, all earthly, all lies, all deceit. And you want to have centered your life on him. The broad road may lead to much treasure on earth, but it will be zero treasure in heaven. Revelation 6, 15-17 says this, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, so it's not just the rich, it's also the poor, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You know the only one standing will be the one standing behind Jesus when he returns? Not in front of him? Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is a hard verse. We're going to deal with it a little bit more later. My natural inclination, which Ryan and I would disagree, I think, maybe. (laughs) But uh, we talked about this week. I think some, he may, I don't know if we agree. We'll have to talk about it later. But some of those here, he's speaking of, I think that we'll see the power of the resurrection and experience the power of the resurrection by the Spirit. Some will actually see that. The story, this started with him telling Peter and them, I'm going to die and on the third day be risen. But after they said die, like everybody forgot what he said about being risen. But he's saying like, some of you will experience that. You will see that. You will know that. You will understand that. You will understand resurrection power. You will understand the pathway to the, I mean, to the crown is the cross. The, the, road is, the, the road to glory is shame. That, that's the journey. That's the life of the Messiah. That is the life of the Christian. Jesus said you're not better than your teacher. Or you're not better than your master. If I'm going to be persecuted, so will you be persecuted. So a correct view of the person and work of Jesus leads to a correct view of your person and your work. The role that you have. Now, here's the wonderful thing. What is it like to wear the crown? What is it like? You'll still be wondering and be in amazement of it when you sing the song, when we've been there 10,000 years, right, shining as the sun, we'll no less day to seek God's praise than when we first begun. To sing His praise eternally. To be in His presence eternally. To experience the light of the sun eternally. To know joy and glory and wonder and amazement and renewal Eternally, to know a a time where there'll be no crying or pain or sorrow, that all things will be right and restored and true and filled with joy and glory forever. 
So bear the cross, and you'll also wear the crown. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to make this a church. And make me a person willing to identify with our Savior in His suffering so that we also may identify with Him in His glory. In Christ's name, amen.